Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 139 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and art of game mastering. Not only do I pass along any knowledge I've gained over 25 plus years of running RPGs, I also share wisdom from guest GMs and listener GMs like you. Today, I'll discuss multiclassing and feats in D&D 5th edition. These are two optional rules that you can use or not use in order to tailor your game to get exactly the experience that you're looking for. But before I get into that, I want to remind you that Game Master's Journey now has voicemail. Woohoo! So in addition to all the other fantastic ways that you can get a hold of the show, which I tell you all about at StarWalkerStudios.com, you can also now call my voicemail and leave me a message. You can reach me at 951-GMJ-LEX-1. That's 951-465-5391. Give me a call, leave a message, ask me a question, give me feedback on the show, comment on a past topic, or just say hi. And if you're entertaining or enlightening, you might just hear your message on the show. I also have a bit of an update and some feedback on episode 137, in which I was updating episode one. 136, in which I was talking about comparing the encounter building system that we're given in the DMG with the new alternative encounter building system that we were given in the Unearthed Arcana. So we keep updating this, uh, trying to figure out the whole um, legendary thing. So it turns out I was a bit out of my tree in the last episode when I was saying that we're not given any guidance as to determining the CR of a homebrewed legendary creature. Turns out we're given a little bit more guidance than I thought we were. I want to thank listener Jerry Bricks for cluing me into this, left a comment on the website and let me know that actually we are told what to do with legendary resistance specifically and its impact on challenge rating on page 280 of the DMG in the monster features table. Legendary resistance is in that table. I'm not going to go into the mechanics of that. They're a little fiddly. You you can check that out on your own. But the point I want to make on the show today is that we are given some guidance on how legendary resistance will impact the CR of a monster. As I said in the previous episode, you can figure out the impact of many of the legendary or lair actions that your legendary creature will have just based on how that is going to increase its damage output. So for instance, say you give your monster three legendary actions and one of those actions it can make at the end of a PC's turn or actually any character's turn. It could be an NPC's turn, which is interesting and not something I realized until I was reading over this again. It just says any character's turn. doesn't have to be a player character. Interesting. But anyway, say you've got three legendary actions. Say one of those legendary actions that can take is some kind of an attack. You could just assume that it's going to use all three of its legendary actions to attack every turn and add that to the damage it can put out per turn for figuring out the offensive side of its CR. And now we have some guidance on legendary resistance to help you figure out the defensive side of the CR. 
Now, you still may have some, some legendary actions that you're not sure about, as well as some lair actions that you're not sure about as, how, as far as how those are going to impact CR. But as Jerry pointed out in the comment, don't forget to check over that monsters features table and see if you can find the ability that you're wondering about in that table or something close to it. I'm actually pretty embarrassed by this. I kind of overlooked that table uh, when I was talking about this and, and didn't even think to look in there for legendary stuff. I've since looked and, and the only legendary thing I can find in that table is legendary resistance. So we're still a little bit, you know, there's probably going to be elements of a legendary monster that you're not going to be able to directly correlate to CR. And there's still going to be a, probably a little bit of guesswork for you, but at least we have a little bit more guidance than I thought we did. And now I wonder, because I've said more than once on this show that I've reversed engineered creatures to see if I could come up with the same CR that Wizards did. And just this past weekend, in fact, I did this with the gelatinous cube and uh, could not really get to the CR that Wizards got, honestly. However, I know for sure this Sunday I did not look at the monster features table. So now I want to do this again because maybe I neglected to do that other times that I've tried to reverse engineer monsters and see if maybe, for instance, some of the gelatinous cube, for instance, abilities are on that table and I can get some guidance for some of its miscellaneous stuff, how that might impact CR. So I'm kind of wanting, if, if I can ever find the time, I'm kind of wanting to reverse engineer some monsters again, maybe some legendary, maybe some non-legendary and see if I can get close. I don't feel like we have to be exact because there is some art to this, right? And I think even Wizards acknowledges that in both the DMG and in other places that, you know, it's not like you can just plug things into an equation and get the CR of a monster. There are some judgment calls that are made. There are some, wow, I just fucked that up grammatically. There are some judgment calls to be made and there is some art involved to it. And that's why they get paid the big bucks, right? So that's cool. I'm fine with that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with us maybe never completely understanding the workings under the hood of the system the way that they do. That's okay. But I do think if they give us a system like this, we should be able to use it to reverse engineer monsters they've come up with and at least get close. You know, maybe we're a CR off, but we should be in the right ballpark. And in the past, I have not been in the right ballpark, but maybe just like this, this, this Sunday with the uh, gelatinous cube, maybe I was neglecting this monster features table. Maybe there were some abilities the monsters had that I was just ignoring because I didn't know how to deal with them. And maybe they were in this table and I could have had some more guidance that would have gotten me closer to that target CR that is in the monster manual. Christopher Rusenbeck and, and I have been kind of going back and forth about some of this on the Game Master's Journey community. And I know he just recently submitted, uh, he did a legendary version of a goblin, which is pretty great and awesome and hilarious. So definitely check that out. But this would be fun to play with. If, if you're the kind of guy like I am that likes kind of fiddling with systems and stuff, you know, pick some monsters out of the monster manual and reverse engineer them, put them through the system, see what CR you come up with for a monster in the monster manual. See if it's the same as what Wizards came up with. See if you can get to where they got and let us know how you did. You know, let us know in the Game Master's Journey community 
or you can call my voicemail, let me know that way, or shoot me an email, or however you want to do it. But if I get some responses to this, I, I will share it on the show because I, I think it's pretty interesting. And I mean, this is a show for GMs. And I think most GMs, if not all GMs, eventually at least get to a point where they they like to tinker with their system of choice. So I think we're all kind of tinkerers, or most of us are anyway. And those of us that aren't may become tinkerers eventually before everything's said and done. So um, if people are interested in this and people are playing with it and sharing results, I'll definitely share them with you because I think it's interesting. And at the end of the day, we we all learn something through this, right? It's like I started on uh, episode 136, you know, talking about these encounter building rules, had to come back on episode 137 and revisit it a bit a bit because I'd made some mistakes and had to come back on episode 138 and revisit it again because I'd made yet other mistakes And here I am on episode 139, revisiting again. So, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But I think what's important is I'm learning from this. I already, you know, through the course of making these episodes, I feel like I have a much better grasp of, you know, monster design and figuring out CR and, and building encounters with either of the methods, the DMG or the Unearthed Arcana methods, than I did before I started talking about this on the show. So I've learned a lot from you and your feedback and discussions that we've had about this. And so hopefully you're learning too. And as long as we're learning, it's all good. So thank you so much, Jerry Bricks, for your feedback and pointing that out to me. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for keeping me honest and helping me give the best information I can to all the listeners. So will we be revisiting this again in episode 140? I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. Maybe I've finally gotten it right. Or at least close enough that that we don't revisit it. I don't know. I enjoy talking about this, though. Do you? Do you not? Let me know. Time to crack open that player's handbook again. So in previous segments of this, let's read the player's handbook with Lex Starwalker. (laughs) We have discussed all the way through chapter five. So I kind of breezed through the introduction, preface, chapters one through four pretty quickly. And then we dug into chapter five quite a bit talking about equipment. So today, we're going to start out talking about chapter six. So I got to say, before we get into chapter six here, when I first started playing and running D&D way back long ago in the advanced Dungeons and Dragons, first and second edition days, I would have very much appreciated having something like this to listen to where a more experienced GM would go through the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide with me and kind of show me the ropes. So I hope if there are any of you listening who are newer GMs or maybe you're considering trying GMing for the first time, I hope that this is helpful to you. And I hope for those of you that are more experienced GMs that you're still getting value out of this maybe Hopefully, I'm, I'm finding some, some treasures in these books that maybe you overlooked or maybe you forgot about. So getting back to chapter six, this is customization options, pretty much multi-classing and feats. 
And the first thing that I want to point out about chapter six is both of these aspects of the game, multiclassing and feats, are optional. They are not part of the core game. They are not required. (laughs) They're optional. So as a dungeon master getting ready to run D&D, you have a lot of decisions you can make to customize your campaign and customize your game and the way that you run D&D to fit your style as a GM, to fit the style of the players that you have, and to create the kind of experience that you're looking for. So maybe you're an old grognard like me, and, and maybe you first cut your teeth on first edition or second edition, and maybe there are elements of previous editions of the game that you want to have in fifth edition, or there are aspects of play that you really enjoyed in older versions of the game, and you want to recapture that in fifth edition. And a lot of times, these optional and variant rules can help you do that. I've seen rules that remind me of things from second edition, rules that remind me of things from third edition, rules that remind me of the little bit I know about fourth edition. So whatever your edition of choice, you can greater capture or recreate that edition in fifth edition just based on the optional and variant rules that you do and don't use. So two of these optional systems are multiclassing and feats. So let's start with multiclassing. Now, I never played original D&D, so I don't know if multiclassing or dual classing were things in original D&D. I know they were in first edition and I know they were in second edition. And I'm trying to remember now if second edition still had the distinction between multi-classing and dual classing. I don't remember, but I know for sure that first edition did. And if you're wondering, Lex, what are you talking about? This dual classing, what the hell is that? Well, at least in first edition, and I think second edition was like this too, but I'm not sure you had two different ways that that you could have more than one class. The first was multi-classing, which is very similar to multi-classing as we know it today in 5th edition, where you you could be a fighter mage. And every time you leveled up, you decided, do I want to take a level in fighter or do I want to take a level in mage? That kind of thing. Pretty, Pretty cut and dry. Dual classing was a little bit different Because instead of having two or more classes that you were kind of advancing together, with dual classing, you would start out as, say, a fighter and advance through fighter for a few levels or whatever. And then you would decide, I'm going to become a wizard. And you would take wizard, or I think it was mage or magic user back then, and you would just advance in that class. And you would no longer advance in fighter. You would just advance on as a wizard from now on. So we don't really have that distinction anymore in 5th edition. I mean, you could do it that way. You could, you know, take your first five levels as fighter and then take the rest of the levels of your career as wizard, which would be kind of recreating that that dual class experience from earlier editions. But mechanically, it doesn't matter. It, it all works the same way. It doesn't matter, you know, if you take a level fighter and then take a level wizard and then level fighter, level wizard and so on, or if you take five levels of fighter, and then 15 levels of wizard. It doesn't matter. It all works the same way, which is nice. It kind of simplifies it. And through various editions of D&D, we 
you know, in addition to the whole multi-classing, dual-classing thing, we've seen multi-classing handled in different ways. In some editions, it's been more difficult to multi-class or there were more requirements in order to be able to multi-class. And then in other editions, it was much easier. For instance, third edition, multi-classing was really easy to do and was very common. It was very common to see three point X characters having, you know, levels in more than one class. And also in third edition, we, we had prestige classes, which were special classes that you could only multi-class into and they weren't full one to 20 classes. You know, a prestige class might only have a few levels or might only have 10 levels or something like that. And you couldn't start out as a prestige class you had to start out as a regular class, and then later you could multi-class into a prestige class. We did have a an unearthed arcana that took a stab at a prestige class for fifth edition, but that's all we've seen. And that was a while ago. I I wonder if maybe it wasn't received very well. I kind of liked it. My initial reaction was I, I was not super keen about bringing prestige classes back. But I liked what they did with it. And, and specifically, I liked that they kind of had more story requirements to go into this class than, for instance, we often saw in third edition. But uh, yeah, I'd have to see a lot more prestige classes from Wizards to decide if, if it would be something that would make the game better or not. So getting back to multi-classing, first of all, you know, this is an optional thing. So your players may be assuming that multi-classing is allowed, but that is not an assumption your player should be making. And that is not an assumption you should make as a GM. That's a decision that you get to make. So let's uh, dig into the player's handbook here. So it says the combination of ability scores, race, class, and background defines your character's capabilities in the game. And the personal details you create set your character apart from every other character. Even within your class and race, you have options to fine-tune what your character can do. But this chapter is for players who, with the DM's permission, want to go a step further. This chapter defines two optional sets of rules for customizing your character, multiclassing, and feats. Multiclassing lets you combine classes together, and feats are special options that you can use instead of increasing your ability scores as you gain levels. Your DM decides whether these options are available in a campaign. So if you're a player going to roll a character with a, with a new DM that you've never played with before, don't assume that multiclassing is allowed. Don't assume that feats are allowed. Ask your DM. And also, you know, briefly while we're on this, this subject, you know, another option that we didn't discuss because I, I didn't really go into the races chapter is the human variant option, which again is something that your DM may or may not allow. And you shouldn't assume that you can use the human variant when you're rolling a character for a DM you've never played with before. You should ask. Also, DMs, these are great things to tell your players about, you know, before they even start thinking about characters, ideally is whether or not you allow human variant, whether or not you allow multi-classing, and whether or not you allow feats. So let's talk about multi-classing, shall we? Multi-classing allows you to gain levels in multiple classes, hence the name. <laughs> Doing so lets you mix the abilities of those classes to realize a character concept that might not be reflected in one of the standard class options. 
With this rule, you have the option of gaining a level in a new class whenever you advance in level instead of gaining a level in your current class. Your levels in all your classes are added together to determine your character level. For example, if you have three levels in Wizard and two in Fighter, you're a fifth level character. As you advance in levels, you might primarily remain a member of your original class with just a few levels in another class, or you might change course entirely, never looking back at the class you left behind, which would be very similar to the dual class characters in earlier editions. You might even start progressing in a third or a fourth class. Compared to a single class character of the same level, you'll sacrifice some focus in exchange for versatility. All right, so before we dig more into the nuts and bolts of multiclassing, let's just talk a little bit about considerations as a DM when you're trying to decide are you going to allow multiclassing or not, and also considerations as a player playing you know, under a DM and whether you're going to use multiclassing with your character. So first off, as a DM, you know, first point I, I just want to reiterate is you do not have to use multiclassing. Don't feel like you do. You don't. And I would say if you're running a game for less experienced players, maybe players who are new to RPGs and or players who are new to D&D and or players who are new to 5th edition D&D, I would seriously consider not allowing multiclassing, at least for the first adventure or campaign. It is more advanced. It is more complicated. And an unwary player or an inexperienced player or a player who doesn't fully grasp the mechanics of the game can end up making decisions when it comes to multiclassing that they will ultimately regret. You know, we have the sentence here that says, you know, you're sacrificing some focus for more diversity in what you can do. And another way to think about that or, or another way to say that is you're probably going to sacrifice some ultimate raw power for more versatility. Okay, now there, there might be exceptions to this, but, but as a general statement, a character of a given level who is just a single class will tend to be more powerful than a character of the same level who has multiple classes. Now, there may be exceptions to that, and, and there may be some exceptions to that that are due to kind of broken <laughs> interactions that, that one can find when you start playing around with multiclassing and, oh, I'll take a level of this and a level of that and a level of this. And I think actually, unlike 3rd edition and unlike Pathfinder, 5th edition's designed fairly well in the multiclassing where those seem pretty few and far between, those kind of instances of kind of broken class combinations. And for the most part, at least in my experience, it seems like when a player character decides to multiclass, they do sacrifice some raw power for that added versatility. And I think that's good. I think that's good design. I think that that's the way it should be. I think that, that if you can take a multi-class character and combine it to a single-class character of the same level and the multi-class character is more powerful, you've got some problems there and there's something you need to fix there. So as a DM, you know, in 
deciding whether or not to even allow multi-classing, you know, think about the, the experience level of your players. If your players aren't very experienced, if they're new players, I would just leave multi-classing out. Like I said, at least for the first adventure, you know, let them learn the game, let them learn how to play an RPG, let them learn a, a class, at least a single class with a single character and kind of get a firm foundation before you bring in multi-classing, partly because it's just more complicated and it might confuse them. And also because it takes a little more mastery of the system to know what are more effective multi-class combinations and what are less effective ones and, and at what point it's good to multi-class. So for instance, an example or an illustration of why it might matter when you multi-class is unlike in third edition, in fifth edition, your ability score increases are tied to your class level, not your character level. So depending on what classes you're multi-classing into and what level you are when you take those other classes, you could very easily end up with fewer ability score increases than you would have had if you would have stayed with a single class. And if your first class is rogue or fighter, you're almost always going to end up with fewer ability score increases if you multi-class because rogues and fighters get more ability increases than anybody else does. They get bonus ones above and beyond what everybody else gets. So that's one illustration of how, you know, the exact level that you decide to multi-class into wizard from fighter might matter. Also, you want to look at, you know, the abilities that you get at different levels in the different classes and think about which abilities do I really want? Most classes, or I think all classes, get some kind of really cool capstone ability at like level 20. And if you multi-class, you're never going to see that ability. You're never going to see the 20th level fighter ability if you multi-class in the wizard or rogue or whatever, because the game only goes to level 20. So you can't get to the level 21 to get that capstone ability that you might want. So for instance, just grabbing something random out of the book, the cleric at level 20 gets divine intervention improvement, which your chance of successfully getting divine intervention gets better. And so if you're going to multi-class as a cleric, you're, you're never going to get that ability because you'll never get to level 20 as a cleric. So that's something to think about, I guess, from a, from a player perspective in deciding whether to multi-class and if so, when and into what class. And as you can see, just from that example, I think it, it's getting a little hairy, right? It gets a little complicated, more so than, than I would want a new player to have to deal with. I'd rather the new player focus on learning the game and having fun with their character. This is Matthew Colville, and you're listening to Game Master's Journey. I want to give a quick shout out to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. The support of the patrons makes this show possible. If you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. Patrons get some cool perks like game material I make for Primordia and access to a special monthly podcast I produce just for the patrons. I'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier four patron, Mr. Steve Strickland. Let's hear it for Steve. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. 
All right, so now as a player, considering whether or not to multi-class with your character, you know, I would, my first piece of advice would be, remember, you are going to sacrifice some power. You know, you're kind of trading your ultimate final firepower for having more weapons to choose from. Kind of not a great analogy, but that's kind of how it works. You know, you're getting more abilities that you can use, more things to choose from, but your total power is going to be less. So that's something you want to think about. Look around and see if maybe there's a different way you can accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. For instance, let's say you're, you're playing a fighter and you want to do the kind of fighter mage kind of thing. Well, maybe look at being an Eldritch Knight. If it's early enough in the campaign, you haven't chosen your specialty yet, you know, you could choose to be an Eldritch Knight. And now you, you kind of get that little bit of magical ability that you were wanting without having the multi-class, without having to sacrifice your ultimate power level, and without having to deal with the extra bookkeeping and mechanics of dealing with a multi-class character, especially one that casts spells. Another possibility is if your DM allows feats, a lot of times you can get the multi-class kind of flavor you're wanting just by picking one or two feats. So for instance, again, if you're a fighter and you're, you're wanting to have some ability with magic, there's the magic initiate feat, which gives you some, some very limited magical ability but it might be enough for you to get that flavor that you want. And again, you don't have to make that sacrifice of giving up a level in fighter to get it. And that's one thing I really like about how feats are handled in 5th edition is you can get that kind of multi-class feel with a single class character just by taking the right feats, which is pretty sweet. All right, so let's say your, your DM allows multi-classing and you've decided you want a multi-class. How does it work? Well, first of all, there are prerequisites. So every class has one or two ability scores that has a prerequisite. The prerequisite is always 13. So for instance, Barbarian has strength 13 as a prerequisite. That means if you are a Barbarian who wants to multi-class, you first have to have a strength of 13 before you can multi-class into another class. It's like you need to be you know, competent enough, I guess, as a barbarian that you can handle taking on another class. And then you would also need an ability score of 13, whatever the prerequisite is for the class you want to take. So let's say you're a barbarian and you want to multi-class into ranger. Okay. Ranger has prerequisites of dexterity 13 and wisdom 13. So that means for your barbarian to multi-class into ranger, first of all, you got to have a strength of 13 or higher because that's your barbarian prerequisite. And second of all, you need to have a dexterity and a wisdom of 13 or higher because those are the ranger prerequisites. So if you're thinking about multi-classing, definitely look at these prerequisites and make sure that you're where you need to be. If you're doing character creation, and you're using like the stat array or point by, or you're using some kind of rolling method where you can put the ability scores where you want, and you're thinking maybe you want a multi-class, make sure you've got those 13s where you need them. So if I'm making a fighter who has a strength or dexterity of 13 requirement, but I'm thinking at some point I might, might want to multi-class into wizard, which has an intelligence 13 ability score requirement, then I would make sure that my intelligence was at least 13 and that either my strength or my dex was at least 13. So that way, 
if later I decided I want a multi-class in the wizard, I can do it. Of course, another possibility is your ability score increases, which, you know, most classes get them every four levels. Again, the rogue and fighter get them more often. So, you know, this could happen where maybe I start off playing a fighter and I have no thought of someday multi-classing in the wizard, but maybe things happen in the story or things happen with my character, or maybe I'm just getting kind of bored with fighter and I want to be able to do more. And so I decide that I want to multi-class in the wizard, but maybe my intelligence isn't high enough. Well, I could use my ability score increases that I get as a fighter to raise my intelligence until I get it up to 13 and then I can multi-class in the wizard. Next, we go into experience points, and it's really simple as far as XP and how much XP you need to advance to the next level. This is all based on character level, so you would take all your class levels and add them up. But it's important to note here, again, that your actual, what you get at each level is based on your class, not on your total character level. So, for instance, let's look at fighter, and we see... uh, At uh, third level, your fighter gets your martial archetype, so that's your subclass. Then at fourth level, you get an ability score improvement. So let's say I'm a third level fighter. I get enough XP to advance to fourth level, and I decide I'm going to take a level in wizard. Well, guess what? I don't get that level four ability score improvement because that's fighter. The fighter gets that at level four, and I'm still a level three fighter. Now I'm a level one wizard. So I would get all the stuff a level one wizard gets. Well, not all the stuff. We'll get to that. But as far as your class features, I would get those and spells and things like that. But I would not get the level four fighter ability score increase until I was actually a level four fighter. So, you know, it's something you want to think about. And again, that's part of why this is a little more advanced and I wouldn't recommend it to new players. Hit points and hit dice are equally straightforward. You get hit dice from each class. So... You know, if I have three levels in fighter, that's 3d10 plus three times my constitution modifier and hit points. And then if I have two levels in wizard, that's 2d6 plus two times my constitution modifier. Same thing when you're using hit dice for doing a short rest. If I was a level three fighter, level two wizard, I'd have 3d10 hit dice and 2d6 hit dice. And when I'm rolling hit dice to regain hit points as a short rest, I can you know, I can roll those however I want. I I could roll a D10 and then roll a D6 or however I wanted to do it as long as I just use those dice. Really simple and straightforward. Proficiency bonus is based on your total character level. So this is, you know, one of the few things that are based on your character level and not on the class level, and that's your proficiency bonus. And that's actually pretty easy in practice because if you're in a group where everybody's the same level, everybody's going to have the same proficiency bonus and it doesn't matter if you're multi-classed or not. So that's kind of a way you could kind of check to make sure you're doing it right is if you're playing the fighter wizard and the guy next to you is playing a rogue and you're both total character level of six, your proficiency bonuses should be the same. All right, now we get into proficiencies. So there are two kind of things about multi-classing that are a little sticky and one is the proficiencies and the other is your spells. So when you multi-class, you do not get all the proficiencies that a first-level character of that class would get. Instead, you look on this chart on page 164 of the Player's Handbook, multi-classing proficiencies, and that tells you what you get from your new class. And the idea here is 
when you start a brand new character at level one, all the stuff that you get at level one is representing your life up to that point. So for instance, your background represents a lot of your, you know, what you've learned from your life up to this point that isn't related directly to your class or your profession, if you want to think it, think of it that way. So if I'm a fighter, but my background is urchin, then I'm getting some abilities from my urchin background that reflect the fact that I grew up on the streets. And because of that, I know some things that not every fighter would know who hadn't grown up on the streets. So part of that's also reflected in your proficiency. So, you know, when you take a class at first level, you get all these proficiencies and tool proficiencies and all this stuff. But again, that's representing your a life's experience up to that point. So it totally makes sense when you multi-class and do a new class that you shouldn't necessarily get all of that stuff that a first level character would get. So this simply says when you gain a level in a class other than your first, you gain only some of that class's starting proficiencies as shown in the following table. So let's just do a couple examples here. For instance, fighter. Okay, so you multi-class in the fighter. You get your light armor proficiency, medium armor proficiency, shield proficiency, simple weapons, and martial weapons proficiency. So, you know, it looks like you're not getting heavy armor, right? So if you want to be a multi-class fighter and you want to be able to wear heavy armor, then you should probably start out with fighter. Unless, of course, the other class that you're going to multi-class with gives you heavy armor. Another example, let's look at wizard. You get nothing. So the proficiencies that a wizard gets, you don't get any of that when you multi-class in the wizard. So, you know, this isn't something you're going to be able to remember or memorize or, or you wouldn't want to. But just if you're going to multi-class, you're just going to turn to chapter six of the player's handbook. You're going to check your prerequisites on the multi-classing prerequisites table on 163. And you're going to check to see what proficiencies you get from your new class on page 164 in the multi-classing proficiencies table. So now we get into class features, and this says when you gain a new level in a class, you get its features for that level. A few features, however, have additional rules when you're multiclassing. And these are channel divinity, extra attack, unarmored defense, and spellcasting. So we're just going to go through these really quick. So channel divinity. If you already have channel divinity as a feature, and you gain a level in a class that also grants that feature you gain the channel divinity effects granted by that class. But getting the feature again does not give you an additional use of channel divinity. You gain additional uses only when you reach a class level that explicitly grants them to you. For example, if you are a cleric level six, paladin level four, you can use channel divinity twice between rests because you are high enough level in the cleric class to have more uses. Whenever you use the feature, you can choose any of the channel divinity effects available to you from your two classes, cleric or paladin. So that's pretty straightforward, right? You get all of the cool things you can do with channel divinity from your different classes, but you don't get extra uses just because you multi-class. Next is extra attack. If you gain the extra attack class feature from more than one class, the features do not add together. You can't make more than two attacks with the extra attack feature unless it says you do, as the fighter's version of extra attack does. 
Similarly, the Warlock's Eldritch Blast Invocation, Thirsting Blade, does not give you additional attacks if you also have extra attack. So it's pretty straightforward, and a good rule of thumb in in 5th edition is if you see an interaction that seems like it's too powerful, it's probably covered, and that interaction is probably not legal. (laughs) Next, we have Unarmored Defense. If you already have the Unarmored Defense feature, you cannot gain it again from another class. So you can't have multiple instances of unarmored defense stacking up together. You, you only get one. And notice it does not say that you get to pick which one you get. You get the one from the first class you had. So, you know, if you're going to multi-class between like, I think monk and barbarian both have unarmored defense. And um, hang on, let's look at this. Make sure I know what I'm talking about here. Barbarian. Unarmored defense is constitution-based. So you get to add your constitution bonus to your armor class as a barbarian. If we look at monk, uh, unarmored defense. Yeah, so the monk unarmored defense, you get your wisdom bonus to your armor class. So if you start out as a barbarian, let's say you advance to level three as a barbarian and you take a level in monk, you don't get unarmored defense again And you don't get to say, hey, I want to use the monk wisdom version of unarmored defense instead of my barbarian constitution. Uh, No, it doesn't work like that. You trained for a good part of your life to become a barbarian. That's the unarmored defense you get. So if you're making a character and you're going to want to be a multi-class monk barbarian, and maybe you have a higher wisdom than constitution, You might want to start out as a monk so you get the better unarmored defense. That would be part of that decision, right? But you don't get a pick. All right. And then finally, we get into spellcasting. And this is the part of multiclassing that gets a little complicated. And this is definitely not for for beginners. And, you know, if you have a newer player who wants to multiclass and it's not their first adventure, so so you're like, okay, I'm okay with it, I would encourage them to avoid multi-classing as a spellcaster unless you think they can handle it or you're willing to take the time as the DM to make sure they understand what's going on and make sure every time they level that everything's copacetic. All right, so here's how spellcasting works. It's really not as complicated as it sounds. It's just a little fiddly. Your capacity for spellcasting depends partly on your combined levels in all your spellcasting classes and partly on your individual levels in those classes. And I actually, I really like how they did this. I think, I think this is cool. Once you have the spellcasting feature for more than one class, use the rules below. So once you become multi-class and you have more than one class that has spellcasting, you use these rules for determining your spell slots and stuff as opposed to the individual class rules. If, on the other hand, you multi-class but have the spellcasting feature from only one class, like say you're a fighter wizard and you're not an Eldritch Knight fighter, then you follow the rules as described in that class. All right, so spells known and spells prepared. You determine what spells you know and can, can prepare for each class individually as if you were a single class member of that class. If you are a ranger level four, wizard level three, for example, you know three first level ranger spells based on your levels in the ranger class. As third level wizard, you know three wizard cantrips and your spell book contains 10 wizard spells, two of which the two you gained when you gain, when you reach third level as a wizard can be second level spells. 
If your intelligence is 16, you can prepare six wizard spells from your spellbook. Each spell you know and prepare is associated with one of your classes, and you use the spell casting ability of that class when you cast a spell. Similarly, a spell casting focus, such as a holy symbol, can be used only for the spells from the class associated with that focus. So if you're a wizard cleric, you might have a holy symbol that you use as a focus for your cleric spells, and you might have a wand that you use as a focus for your wizard spells. So if you lose your holy symbol, you can't cast your cleric spells that need a focus, even though you still have your wizard focus, because they're, they're different. All right, so pretty straightforward so far, right? Spell slots. Now, this is the, the little fiddly bit, but it's not that bad, I promise. You determine your available spell slots by adding together all your levels in the Bard, Cleric, Druid, Sorcerer, and Wizard classes. Half your levels rounded down in the Paladin and Ranger classes, and a third of your Fighter or Rogue levels rounded down if you have the Eldritch Knight or the Arcane Trickster feature. Use this total to determine your spell slots by consulting the multi-class spellcaster table, which is on the next page, page 165. So this isn't as complicated as it sounds. If you look at the various spellcasting classes in the player's handbook, you will notice that there are basically three different spell progressions in the game. There's what we could call a full caster, which they list here is the bard, cleric, druid, sorcerer, and wizard. So if you look at the spell slot table for all those classes, they're exactly the same because those are full casters. So they're the same. They get up to ninth level spells. Then you have what you could think of as your half casters, which are your paladin and ranger. So if you look at the paladin and the ranger and you look at their spell slot progression, they're exactly the same, but they're different from, say, the wizard or the cleric, the full casters. They don't get quite as many spells as the full casters, and they don't get as high a level of spells. And then you have what you can consider your one-third casters, which are like your Eldritch Knight Fighter or your Arcane Trickster Rogue. And again, if you look at those spell slot progression tables, they're, they're identical to each other but less than what a ranger would get and even more or less than what a wizard would get. So basically, if you're dealing with full spell casting classes, you just take whatever your level is and that's your spell casting level. When you're dealing with the half classes, which is paladin and ranger, you would take half that level. And if you're dealing with a third class, which would be eldritch knight, fighter, or arcane trickster rogue, you take a third of that level. So this goes on to say, if you have more than one spellcasting class, this table might give you spell slots of a level that is higher than the spells you know or can prepare. You can use those slots, but only to cast your lower level spells. If a lower level spell that you cast, like Burning Hands, has an enhanced effect when using a higher level slot, you can use the enhanced effect even though you don't have any spells of the higher level. So for example, if you are the aforementioned Ranger 4 Wizard 3, you count as a 5th level character when determining your spell slots. And why is that? Okay, well... Wizard 3, Wizard is a full caster, so that's three levels there. You get all three of your levels of Wizard as spell casting levels. 
And then Ranger 4, Ranger is a half caster. So you would get two from Ranger 4, two spell casting levels. Three plus two is five. So you cast spells as far as your spell slots as a fifth level caster. So you would have four first level slots, three second level slots, and two third level slots. However, you don't know any third level spells because neither a fourth level ranger nor a third level wizard has access to third level spells yet. Nor do you know any second level ranger spells because a fourth level ranger doesn't have second level spells yet. So you've got third level spell slots, but you don't have any actual third level spells. You can use the spell slots of those higher level slots to cast the spells that you do know and potentially enhance their effects. So you could use that third level slot to cast a third level magic missile, for instance. All right, so then we have Pact Magic. If you have both the spellcasting class feature and the Pact Magic class feature from the Warlock class, you can use the spell slots you gain from the Pact Magic feature to cast spells you know or have prepared from classes with the spellcasting class feature, and you can use the spell slots you gain from the spellcasting class feature to cast warlock spells you know. But in that instance, you would have two different sets of spell slots. They don't add together like the other casters do because pack magic is, is just its own weird thing. It doesn't work like the other spell casters. And that's it. That's multiclassing. That's how it works. So again, unless you're getting into spell casting, it's pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, the only kind of sticky bit is what proficiencies you get with the new class. And again, there's an easy table you just look that up on. And even the spell casting, uh, once you wrap your brain around it, it's really not that hard to figure out. And it's only something you need to figure out every time you level. And then, you know, you figure out what your casting level is, basically. And you find your spell slots on this table here on page 165. And you're good to go. But you can see here, kind of from the, the example they were using with the fourth level ranger, third level wizard, how, you know, that wizard doesn't have, or that ranger wizard doesn't have as high level spells as he would if he were a seventh level wizard, right? But he still has, you know, the third level spell slots that he, that he could use, but still he doesn't even have the spell slots that he would have as a seventh level wizard because the ranger is only a half caster. So only half those ranger lo levels are, cast, are counting as additional spellcaster levels, if you follow what I'm saying. So you can see right there in that example how this character is getting a lot more things that, that this character can do. You know, you compare a wizard ranger to just a ranger. I mean, you have a lot more spells to choose from, a lot more different things you can do. But you're sacrificing ultimate power because you don't have those high-level spells and you don't have the higher level spell slots that you would if you were just a wizard. And you also don't have the hit points that you would have if you were just a ranger. Although I, I feel like spellcasters lose more multiclassing than non-spellcasters do. But I'm not sure about that. But it seems like it's a, it's a more of a power loss if you're going to multiclass as a spellcaster than it is if you're going to multiclass as a non-spellcaster. But I could be wrong about that. All right, so next we have feats. And honestly, there's not a whole lot to say about feats without going into each feat and talking about it, which I'm not going to do now. If you want me to do that, <laughs> let me know. Uh, you can reach me from starwalkerstudios.com and let me know you want me to go through all the feats. And I will if enough, enough people want me to, but I, I don't think people are really interested in that or going to be. 
So all I'll say is that, again, feats are optional. You don't have to use feats. And feats and multiclassing aren't like a package deal. Even though they're in the same chapter, you can use multiclassing and not use feats or vice versa. So if you use feats, anytime a character would get an ability score improvement, which most characters get those every four levels, and then the fighter and rogue get some more, anytime they would get that ability score improvement, they can instead choose a feat. Now, you can, as a GM, say, I don't allow feats and just don't use them at all. Or you could say, I allow feats and just, you know, the players take whatever feats they want and that's it. Or you could say, I allow feats, but I have to approve them. You know, if you want to have a little control over the min-maxing and, and make sure that it makes sense that a character would get a certain feat. I will also mention just as an aside, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we get into the DMG, but there is an optional system in the DMG for training, which, uh, you know, when you level up, you have to take time to train to get the new abilities and they have a, a similar system for feats. So you could have a training cost for learning a feat. Like it takes some time to learn the feat and you have to learn it from someone who can teach it to you. So that's something you could do too. Now, unlike multiclassing, I don't think that you necessarily need to worry about feats with new players. And the reason is that you don't start out with any feats unless you use the human variant. So if you have new players and you want to use feats, but you don't want to deal with it at first level, maybe don't allow the human variant. But other than the human variant, you know, you don't get any feats at first level. You don't get any feats until fourth level. So even a new player, you know, if you're not skipping levels or starting at, you know, if you're starting at first level and you're taking your time through those lower levels, letting them learn the game, by the time they get to fourth level, they can probably handle a feat if they decide to go that route. And if they can't, they can just take the ability score increase. And I think, again, that's something that will manage itself. I think if a, if a player is feeling a little overwhelmed by the mechanics, they're just going to take the, the stat bump and they're not going to worry about feats. If, on the other hand, you have a player that's that's really grasped the, the rules of the game and they're really digging it, you know, they, they might be happy to add some feats to their character and have more they can do mechanically. So as I said before, there are some great feats in here that you can use to get kind of a more multi-class feel to your character without actually having the multi-class. So you can get proficiency in weapons. You can get proficiency in armor you can get some minor spell casting ability and things like that all with feats that you can take. So they're pretty cool. I've never not used feats in fifth edition. I don't think that they're a problem. Feats were kind of a mess in third edition and Pathfinder just because there are so many and um, they had these feat trees, you know, where you'd have to get, you know, three feats before you can get the feat that you want or whatever. And people felt like they had to like plot out their character advancement ahead of time and stuff like that. The feats in fifth edition tend to be more powerful than feats in third edition. They're almost like two feats in one a lot of times or a feat and a half. Um, so you get more bang for your buck with a feat from fifth edition than you did before. And they don't have the prerequisites where, oh, before you get whirlwind attack, you have to have, oh God, what was it? Spring attack and dodge and all this other crap. It's like most of the feats, you can just take it. 
if you want it. They don't really have prerequisites, or at least they don't have prerequisites that are other feats. <laughs> Some of them have prerequisites, like you need a 13 strength or you need perfect proficiency with medium armor or something like that, but they don't have feet prerequisites, which is nice. So there aren't a lot of feats in the player's handbook. However, there have been some feats added in various unearthed arcanas. Of course, those are for playtesting. They're not necessarily balanced, but if you're wanting to add some more feats to the game, definitely look through the various unearthed arcanas and, and check some of those out, you know, but again, you know, be, be wary because they may not be balanced and you might have to tweak them if they seem too powerful or maybe not powerful enough. And that is the end of chapter six. This is also the end of part one of the player's handbook. So we've, uh, we've gotten through quite a bit of it. So when we get into the DMG, we're going to go through a lot of variant and optional rules that you can use or not use to really tweak the game and get the experience that you want to get. But right here in chapter six, you know, we've got two big ones, multi-classing and feats. And the game can have a very different kind of feel to it, depending on whether you allow multi-classing and feats and how limited or unlimited access to those things is for the player characters. So, you know, I'm not really going to say this is what you should or shouldn't do. I, I don't think there is such a thing. It really depends on what you want as a DM and what your players are going to enjoy. So think about it and, you know, maybe talk about it with your players. You know, this could be a decision you make as, as a group if, as a DM, you don't have a strong opinion one way or another. You know, if you're kind of like, ah, multi-classing feats, I could take it or leave it, then maybe ask the players, hey, hey, what do you guys want to do? And come to a group consensus. Well, I think it's about time to wrap up episode 139 of Game Master's Journey. Thank you so much for coming along with me on my journey, joining me today as we discuss the player's handbook and we discuss multi-classing and feats. Interesting stuff. I hope that you're enjoying these episodes as, as much as I'm enjoying making them. I don't know how many times I've read the DMG and the player's handbook and I still, almost every time I read them, find some little gem that I either didn't notice before or I forgot about or I overlooked or whatever. So I'm enjoying this too. I'm learning a lot by doing these episodes. So I hope you're enjoying them as well. I just want to remind you that if you would like to get a hold of me to give me feedback for the show or ask a question or suggest a topic or anything like that, there are a lot of ways that you can do it. You can email me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Google+. I'm on Facebook. I've got a YouTube channel. I've, I've got some Pinterest boards where I collect art that inspires me, whether it's for Primordia or, or whatever. Um, so all of that stuff can be found at my website at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey for this show. I used to go through it all on the show but it's all on the website. You can find all that stuff on the website. You can find the voicemail number, my YouTube channel, everything. It's all there. So just go to starwalkerstudios.com and you'll find everything that you need. And finally, at starwalkerstudios.com, you can learn how you can help support this show and keep this show going by either becoming a patron of the show, which would be awesome, or by making a one-time donation 
which would also be awesome. Or I suppose you could do both if you wanted to. So you can find all that and more at starwalkerstudios.com. So I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I will be back soon with yet another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.